to join me in prayer as we focus our minds upon Christ, His teachings, and how we will seek to serve and glorify Him with our lives. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for bringing us together. Lord, I pray that you would be with our brothers and sisters who are in rehab facilities and recovering at home and those who are in hospitals. God, I pray that you'd be with them and you'd help to keep them on our mind. Help us to care for them and have wisdom to do just that. Lord, I know coming here this morning, our lives were full of distractions. Getting dressed, figuring out what shirt matches, and getting kids in the car and everything that comes with our morning routines. And I know that you were with us in that. As we sit, ready to hear your word, as we worship you, God, I pray that you would set those distractions aside for a moment. God, I pray that we would not be encumbered with the burden of things that are to come this evening or this afternoon, but for the time that we turn to your word, that our mind would be fixed upon you and your message. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. When our conscious mind is awakened to the existence of sin, to the extent that we cannot or we begin to perceive that there is no possible plea of mercy within ourselves. When our brain realizes and recognizes that there is nothing inside of our human condition that brings us closer to God, that could possibly redeem us to God, that could make us have this relationship with Him, it is only wise to turn and to look for a plea of mercy, because it does not exist in ourselves, in God Himself. The truth is, our fallen condition, the condition of everyone gathered together this morning, even those who neglect the gathering of the saints, is that there is nothing within us that can, recommend, that can be recommended to the Most High and Glorious Lord. If we think that we have a claim upon God's goodness, we live in darkness, we deceive ourselves. The true light has come into the world and has revealed our barrenness of any merit, of any excuse to have this wonderful relationship with our Lord and our Creator. It has shown us that there is nothing in our human nature that does not provoke the Lord. That the simple fact of our fallen condition while unregenerate is that we have no mercy with God. It is then, in the same way, Wise that we turn to God's nature to be our plea for mercy because it is in God's nature that mercy exists. The simple fact of our fallen condition points us closer to God. It might be the sinful condition that we get wrapped up with recognizing how much we are in need of redemption, how much we are in need of mercy, how much of an excuse that we need. But when we turn to God, when we turn to His history, His providence, His prevailing story, when we look at the narrative that Scripture is pointing and moving towards, as we look at the covenants being revealed progressively and showing us what God has done in establishing a new covenant, no longer inscribing the laws of the world in a book that we must conform to them, but inscribing them upon our hearts, giving us a, taking a stone of, heart of stone and replacing it with the heart of flesh. What has God done in His great mercy? 
The Christian who lives their life with no evidences of this relationship that may be established in Christ, who does not appear to discern God's will or God's way, who stumbles in their faith, groping onto something that it might be onto their own person or trying to find some mercy in themselves, is no different than a sinful, reprobate, God-dishonoring, stiff-necked sinner who refuses to repent or to hear the good news of Christ. I appeal to you, all of you, my beloved church, my beloved church family, the people who I have forsaked a life to come and serve, I appeal to you this morning to hear God's mercy, to look down at your hands and to look at what you're groping onto, to look down and see what you are refusing to let go of, that you would realize, as the sinner needs to realize, as the saint needs to realize, that there is nothing in you that deserves mercy. There is nothing in you that justifies an excuse. Without Christ, we all stand condemned. It is God's mercy that gives the Christian comfort, that establishes hope in our lives, that gives us the warrant to preach the gospel, the good news to every person within earshot. Where can we look for grace but to God, to the God of all grace? Where for all but to all in all? If what I am makes me despair, let me consider what God in Christ is, and I shall have hope. God is merciful. The God, the Most High, is merciful. He's merciful towards sinners. He is the point upon which we hang our hope. Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. We pick up this morning as Ezra stands to proclaim the word of God before the people. He's exalted by the men who have gathered, who have recently worshipped God for the first time since the days of Joshua, since the wall has been rebuilt, and now the focus of God through Nehemiah is no longer on rebuilding the physical structures, but rebuilding what is within. Ezra is told, stand up and bless, glorify God. And how does he glorify God but by by recounting everything that he has done? This morning we're in the middle of this prayer. The middle of Ezra standing up to glorify God and we've seen him so far progress from creation. That God has created all things. That he's glorified in creation. That he's glorified in choosing his people the covenant that he established with Abraham, that he delivered them from Abraham to Mount Sinai, delivering them from slavery in Egypt, even though that blessed the people and helped them multiply and establish themselves. We find ourselves in verse 16 this morning, and we will pray quickly before we read the word of God. Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us eyes that we might see the truth found in your law, that we might behold the amazing truth found in your law, that we would know how to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 16, the Bible says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. 
but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way and did not depart from them by day, nor did the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way way for which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued it before them, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the people of their lands that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. God has been good to his people. God has not changed. He is still good to his people. He is a perfect God. He created a perfect creation. And He loves it and cherishes it. Looking at this narrative that the Bible paints of what God has done for His people, I'm reminded just how patient He is. Just how enduring He is. You see... In creation, there's this principle that we hold on to called a general grace or a general mercy of God. For Christians, we talk about grace and mercy and we're able to celebrate the wonderful, the immaculate, the incredible, the things that we wonder about, the awestruck bewilderment of everything that God has done because we have a comprehension given to us by the Holy Spirit. But let's back up for a second. God's grace and wonder is seen in all of creation in what we would call a general grace. God has been gracious to us. And by the way, friends, this is what makes hell so devastating. If you think hell is a place where you can continue to live as you have on earth, disobeying and running away from God, you are deceiving yourself because in hell you will be removed completely from the general grace that God has established in His creation, in His patience, in His endurance, in His long-suffering for you. 
This general grace as birds sing out and we're able to see some of the glories as we watch light trickle down a stream, as we look at everything that is good inside of creation. What seems to me to be confusing about general grace is that I do not see a rather merciful world. The reality is a farmer who goes out into his field and, and finds himself in the middle of a thunderstorm and crawls up under a tree who's unaware of the laws of nature perhaps, if a lightning bolt comes from heaven and strikes that tree and strikes him dead, he still dies. I ask then, where's the general mercy? Did the laws of nature forgo for a moment this man who simply was seeking shelter from the rain? I ask... If your car is sputtering and puttering and you refuse to change the oil in it, will the laws of nature suddenly give up and give mercy or grace or endure, give some sort of break so that your engine doesn't blow up? No. The laws of nature remain intact. They're unyielding. They don't give up. And this is a physical law. We must consider then a moral law. The laws of God do not give up. They do not relent. They do not change. Looking at nature alone does not give us rest for our fears. It does not give us rest in our grievous heart and recognizing our fallen condition before God. Looking at the general creation that exists in this world does not give us any sense of peace, nor should it, because this moral law established by God endures and does not change. Let us rejoice this morning. Let us rejoice that we are not left simply with the natural testimony of God's mercy, but that we have a book. We have the book written by God with the purpose of giving us a sufficient understanding of his goodness and his mercy. We have a book that tells us over and over again that God that we have offended is ready to pardon us. I want you to sink your teeth into this phrase this morning. If you hear nothing from me ever again, if you leave and never come back to this church, if you leave this morning and take nothing away, I want you to remember those words. God is ready to pardon. He stands ready to pardon. We have a book written by God showing us this purpose. We have a book that tells us over and over again, we have a God whose mercy endures forever. As we cling on to that thought, we turn to verse 16 again to consider the state of Israel in Ezra's prayer. What was the state of the people who hear God's ready to pardon, who hear this plea, who see God standing with an arm outreached, ready to forgive and to embrace that which He has created as we look at what it means to abuse grace. Ezra calls his countrymen a stiff-necked people. This is an apt description Pulled right out of Moses' own description of the Israelites traveling in the wilderness. And we have to consider what is so wrong with being a stiff-necked people. What does it mean to be a stiff-necked people? To be a people who acted presumptuously to God. Friends, what it means to act presumptuously is to take liberties that do not belong to you. For example, I've made all of your hotel reservations for the BMA of Arkansas State meeting because I do not believe that that's a preacher's meeting. I think that's a church meeting, and I think you all need to be there. So there's a hotel room reserved for you, and I know that you've all taken time off work. Don't worry, I've already called all of your employers. You have time off, and you get to go to that meeting. That was rather presumptuous of me, wasn't it? 
Some of you are saying, I don't care what you did, I won't be there. And that's why I didn't do it. Because I know you're more stubborn than I am. I ask though, are you stiff-necked? Not towards me, but towards God. Has God placed a burden on your heart that you're refusing to yield to? Has God convicted you about something that you're refusing to give up? Has God shown you a person that needs to be equipped with the Bible that you're refusing to go to? Have you seen the necessity of the local church, but you refuse to contribute to her needs? Are you stiff-necked? To be presumptuous towards God would be the attitude of the people of Israel whenever they realized that they were God's chosen people. They went around and imagined all of their wonderful blessings. Can you imagine wandering in the wilderness? They didn't have to sow for their food, but it was provided for them. They didn't have to search for water, but it was given to them. They didn't have to wonder or guess what was right or what was wrong, but God's law was given to them. His instruction was provided for them. And still, they were presumptuous to God, thinking that they were God's people. They went around doing whatever they wanted, abusing grace. The most incredible thing about the Bible is that these stories that we read about, they seem to be repeated time and time again. What does Paul write to the church in Rome in describing the grace that God has given to them? Should we say that because grace has been afforded to us that we should let sin abound, that grace may abound all the more? By no means, Paul writes. It seems like this complication of grace has been present ever since the days of Israel traveling under the leadership of Moses. Recounted by Ezra in the book of Nehemiah, looking at the spiritual depravity of the people who would abuse grace, who would neglect the, the time for worship that God had given to them. The way that He had tried to grow them and change them and conform them into His image. Consider God's chosen people for a minute, loved ones. Consider yourselves given illumination and instruction by the Word of God, provided for, and still transgressing against the Lord. Completely dependent upon God and still disobeying Him, still abandoning Him, still going by their own way, being like a mule that doesn't want to follow where it's supposed to go, but going in its own direction. Does a church look like this? Let me go my own way. Let me go my own direction. Instead of looking at the Word of God and applying it to my life, well, I already know everything I know, need to know about the Bible. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. And I'm going to move on with my life. There's more to it than that. There is so much more to it than that. And if you cling to a simple faith, to a simplistic faith, let me warn you what you're up against. You don't understand the beauty of the simplicity. You don't know what it means to say that Jesus loves me. You don't know what it means to say that Jesus loves you. Your faith cannot be simplistic when we look at the Word of God and we look at the time that God has spent, the provision that He has established, the everything pointing back to God's great wonder. I say it is true. Our faith is simple, but it is not simplistic. When we make it simplistic, we become stiff-necked. When we make it simplistic, we become presumptuous. We make our own rules, our own covenants, our own establishments, our own traditions. Instead of seeking to glorify God. To be God's chosen people. 
You guys know my daughter's three years old. I love her to death. But three is harder than two, and I appreciate everyone that warned me about that. That little girl is completely dependent on me. She can't tie her shoes without me. I haven't taught her how to get in the refrigerator without me. She can't go to the bathroom without me. And she still disobeys. We extend some mercy and grace to a three-year-old because we realize she doesn't know any better. You're not a three-year-old. You are completely dependent upon God. He puts the breath in front of you. You cannot breathe without Him. He puts the light in this room. You cannot see without Him. He establishes everything that you hold dear, everything that you despise. He protects you from more than you will ever understand. You are completely dependent upon God, and yet when you disobey Him, There may be people in this world that do not know God. And their transgressions sand without excuse. But I want you to consider for a moment the reality that you consider yourself one of God's chosen. And you act presumptuously and stiff-necked. The issue is not that Israel fell into error. It's not that they were misled. It's not that they didn't want to go the right way. It's that they refused God's will. That they stopped their ears up and they stopped to listen. They're like my toddler screaming at me. I'm here saying, Charlotte, blow a bubble. I'm trying to trick her and just taking a breath. She refuses to listen. She closes her eyes and they don't look at me anymore. She refuses to see. They're quick to pick up Korah and Dathan and Abraham who preached sedition against the God Most High, similar to that of Satan's rebellion in heaven, that they may pursue living in unholy ways, that they may adopt syncretistic customs by marrying Moabite women, that they could turn anyone into anything to God That they could turn to God. That they could see God and simply turn away. The people of Israel demonstrated deliberate acts of grievous sin. They demonstrated a determinant act to repeat this cycle over and over again. The story of God's people over and over again. What we will find from the point in the days whenever God finally brings them into the promised land. They are given warnings. They are chastised. They are brought against. All of these things. They, they call it even a king once they're in the promised land. When they, because they've refused to realize that God's supposed to be the king of the people. They tried to establish something that God never wanted to them, but God, in His mercy, tells Samuel to go ahead and appoint a king. He judges the people, sends them into exile to the point that Ezra has to come back and rebuild the temple, that Nehemiah can come back and rebuild the walls around the city. And now God is at work again and they're chastising and their patience and His endurance calling them back to be His chosen people and they're establishing this and they've just spent the days reading from the book of the law, reading this story and the people grieve. They weep and 
The Israelites, the, the Levites, they tell them to stand up and to joy because today is a joyous day because it's the day of the Lord. And they're able to rejoice because God is merciful. The people, we are told, were unmindful of what the Lord had done for them. They stopped thinking about God's great mercy, his general mercy. We think that if we would have been there, that if we could have seen the Red Sea parted before us, if we could have seen water pour out from a rock, that we would have faith unwavering. But even today, that is not the case amongst Christians who have seen transformations take place. Loved ones, in preaching the gospel, I have seen addicts come to temperance. In preaching the gospel, I have seen hateful people become loving. In preaching the gospel, you heard me make fun of myself somewhat last week and talking about my sin of great arrogance. I've seen my heart become humbled. I've seen and experienced change in my life. I've seen the transformation that God's Word can have on a people. I've seen stiff-necked people become receptive. We see great miracles all around us every day, especially in the church. We see wondrous miracles that we should rejoice over. And yet we sit around with long faces. We look like we're in mourning instead of being mindful of the work that God has done. Even today, Christians have seen transformations. We've seen miracles like that of the Red Sea splitting before us. Are we mindful of God? In all of this, God shows Himself ready to pardon the people in that He continues to guide them. When you consider, sometimes we think about God's judgment against His people and we say, yeah, He threw them into exile. Slow down. How long did that take? He did not forsake the people in the wilderness, but He continued to guide them even after they made an idol for themselves, even after they confessed great blasphemies against God. We look at God's readiness. God's wonderful readiness. Look here in verse 17, somewhere in the middle, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's mercy with a sinner is only rivaled by His patience towards the saints. I'd like to keep in our minds this phrase. He is a God ready to pardon. Not a God who may possibly pardon. Do you hear me, church? He's a God ready to pardon, not a God who might possibly pardon, neither a God who upon strong persuasion and earnest pleadings may at length be induced to forgive, not one who perchance at some remote period after we have undergone a long purgation may manifest mercy, which is now in the background. But He is a God ready to pardon, willing and more than willing, ready Standing prepared, waiting to be gracious. God in this description is like the great host who has prepared a great meal, a great festival, and He's invited everyone to come to it. And He stands not busy, not running around, not putting tablecloths on the table, not laying out plates, but ready to welcome you. 
He says, my oxen and my fatlings are provided. All things are ready. Come and eat. The sacrifice for a relationship with God has been made. The table is ready and He invites you to it. No matter how far your transgressions have separated you from God, no matter how deep your guilt sits inside of your belly, keeping you from turning to God, He is ready. He has established this for you, for me, for all that would come to Him. For all that He would bring unto Him. Not only is the table set, but God is ready. His heart and His hand are ready to bestow upon us pardon. He doesn't want you to make long, drawn-out confessions. He wants you to know that you are forgiven. He doesn't want you to list every sin that you've ever made. He doesn't want you to reveal to yourself. He wants you to know about it and keep yourself from it. He wants to provide that for you. And here's the great mystery of the gospel. The law, in revealing us everything that we've done against God, surely gives us reason to confess towards Him our sins and to confess towards one another our sins. But the real mystery of the gospel is this, and that giving us a heart of flesh and inscribing upon our hearts a law and giving us this relationship with Him, He gives us the power to overcome sinfulness. In establishing everything that He has done progressively throughout history, moving forward into the now, in this new covenant established in Christ's blood, God is able to say, I am ready. The great truth that we find in 1 Peter 20, that Christ has been slain before the foundation of the world, that this has been established from the beginning, that this was the plan from long ago. God has been ready. And His people continue to turn away from Him. Consider now, just think about it, what we were talking about a moment ago. What does it mean to abuse grace? What does it mean to neglect the church? What does it mean to neglect my faith? What does it mean to refuse to teach my children these things? What does it mean to not walk with God? What does it mean to hold the Bible in my own heart language and to not turn to it and ask God to transform my heart? What does it mean to be God's chosen people and to continue to live in unrepentant sin? To hold habits near and dear to ourselves that we might do whatever we want. That we might be presumptuous towards a God who is most high, who is glorious in creation, who has a perfect will, who wants what is best for you, and to not run to it. I like to make fun of my daughter and my son. I really do. It's important that you all know that they're unregenerate. It's important that you guys know that they're not a part of this church. I bring them here because they need the gospel. They need godly people pouring into their lives. I like to pick on them because I think it's important that you realize that not everyone in this building is following Christ. I think it's important that you see that in my children because I want you to see how earnestly I am pouring into them. When I lay at bed at night, the only thought that runs in my head, and I mean this so sincerely, so genuinely, I don't think I could, well, there's no way I can emphasize it with language. You'd have to be there. I look at my children and I pray, God, save them. I know they're young. I know they're little. I know their little hearts don't understand what they do. I pray, God, save them. Because I see in every action of disobedience in them my own disobedience towards God. And I'm a pastor. I'm righteous. 
How many times have I had to read a passage of Scripture before I understood what God was trying to apply to my life? How many times have I read the Bible and I've read something and I've said, well, I see what God's saying about this. Well, that's a really great truth. That has some theological depth to it. I can't wait to write on that. And I walk away and nothing changes in my life. Thank you, God, for being patient. Thank you, God, for abounding in mercy, for being ready to forgive, for continuing to teach me. In all of this, the Bible says God continued to teach the Israelites, giving them a spirit of wisdom. God, thank you for being patient with my hard-heartedness. God, thank you for being ready. The truth is seen in the nation of Israel story, but it goes on today. It has not changed. And thankfully, God has not changed His mercy towards us. The Lord's readiness to pardon us is seen in the fact that He makes no hard conditions with sinners. He does not say, I will only pardon you if you suffer or if you endure. He simply says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Receive what is freely given. That is the gospel and nothing else. Only confess your trespasses. That is your emptiness. And trust in your Savior and you are saved. We cry out, Why has God hidden Himself from me? Why can I not see the face of God? Why can I not feel His Spirit comforting me in my trial? Would you be willing this morning to consider that it may be because you are unwilling to confess the sin at which he is aiming? Are you yet unwilling to tear down the idol in your life? Are you truly desperate for your Savior to sacrifice, for your Savior to sacrifice yourself and what you think of yourself to be comforted by him? Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity that you give us. Lord, I thank you for the way that you have established us and been patient with us. God, I pray that you'd give us sensitive hearts this morning. I pray that as we stand and sing that you'd be glorified and that you would hear worship in our voice as we consider the great mercy that we have in you. God, if there is any pride that exists in this room, I pray that you would humble us. If there is any stiff-necked person in this room, God, I pray that you would break them. I pray that through your provision, you would make us humble. And I pray that you would make us rise above, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand as we sing? Number 385.